We'll turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. We interrupt this regularly scheduled series in the book of Psalms to address something urgent and necessary to talk about in the culture right now, and the best place to recenter our thinking is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. The text will be on the screen in front of you. This is from the hand of the Apostle Paul, and he says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer aliens and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's go to the Lord. O Lord, we admit and confess with great joy that we are created people. We declare that we are temporal, you are eternal. We are finite, you are infinite. We are unclean, you are the Holy One. We all had birthdays. You never began to exist, and so we acknowledge your transcendence. Second of all, Lord, we acknowledge and confess that you have made yourself known. You have spoken to human beings. You have spoken in your word, and you have spoken through your Son. And as John declares in chapter 1, verse 14, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only one from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so, Christ, we acknowledge you as the sovereign one, as the infinite one, as the eternal one, as the never beginning one who came to this earth. And never for one moment did you cease to be anything less than fully God, and yet you became fully man, enduring all of the limitations of being human, sin accepted. And you died in the place of hell, deserving sinners like us and purchased with your blood every salvation blessing predestined for us by the Father. 
And we are so grateful to acknowledge your plan, your sovereign plan unfolding in the world. And we're grateful for the church, your instrument by which you unfold that plan. And Lord, we are a church. And the days feel strange. Father, they feel strange to us. They feel weird. We all feel out of place. The news is, is depressing. We just, we're, we're filled with there's so much uncertainty, so much unpredictability. We just never know when we open up the paper, as it were, or open up the news app on the phone, what disaster, what sort of tension or hostility is violence is to appear. And, and so, Lord, what this does is force us all the more to look to you. And I pray for this church. I pray for this church here, Lord, that we would not be overcome by fear, that we would not be ruled by anxiety, that we would cling to your sovereign love, not just your sovereignty, not just your love, but your sovereign love, your, your sovereignty, which always ordains what is absolutely best for your people. Help us to look to you. Give us that, Lord. I also ask for this church that you would give us courage and compassion. Oh, Lord, we are to be different. We are to be so different from everything and everyone that we're seeing right now who, has, who is on the global stage. And your people are hidden, obscured, oftentimes ignored, forgotten, not included in the public discourse, and that's okay, Lord, because you want us to impact individuals around us. I pray for this church that you would protect it against disunity, that you would protect it against division, animosity. Oh, I pray for the spirit of the early church, that sense of anticipation that you are always on the cusp of doing something profound because you are always at every moment working and moving and governing and guiding all things to work out to the exact predetermined outcome that you yourself have ordained. And this morning, Lord, I especially feel a keen sense of dependence upon you. I, I don't know that I'm dependent, but I want to be. I need your help, Lord. I need you to, to help us even in this moment, in this transaction as, as I preach and these people, these beloved people here, I pray that you would use your word to repair and renovate and refurbish and sharpen and, and make us more precise. Help us not just to think some true thoughts about the Bible. Help us to think our thoughts with the Bible. So help us, Lord, as your word is unfolded. And may you use this morning, small and insignificant though we may look on the surface, may you use this always and only for the glory of your Son. And in his mighty name we pray. Amen. You know, any pastor who loves the Bible way prefers to do expository preaching. And to unfold for his people the treasure-laden riches of the biblical text. However, occasionally there comes a time when a pastor has to pause and has to do a theological analysis. A, a biblical response to something happening right now in the culture. And right now we are at one of those moments. And you see it right now. We're in the middle of not one, but actually two pandemics. There's the weird creepy, hard-to-figure-out virus which came from Wuhan, China. And the second pandemic is outright cultural chaos and anarchy caused by sin which comes from the human heart. 
And it's the second of those pandemics that, that we really need to have a conversation about this morning. See, the issue we need to address this morning from a biblical theological perspective is the onslaught of chaos and the ever-rising tension about race, racial tension, white privilege, Black Lives Matter, and the issue of social justice. We've got to talk about this because the Bible is relevant, perfectly relevant to the situation and what God has to say in the text has to have the final word. It just has to. Because you see, what defines us, what makes us different and salt and light in the world is that that what the text has to say has greater influence and effect upon us than what the culture says or even our own experience tells us. The biblical agenda must carry greater weight than the culture's agenda because there are things you know coming at you at a thousand miles an hour from the culture and in the moment it's nearly impossible to tell what's right, what's true, what to believe, where to stand, how to respond. Am I the only one who feels this way? And because this is all so confusing, because this is so chaotic and confusing, that tells us that there has to be, at the deepest level possible, sin involved. Because sin only makes things confusing and chaotic. Biblical truth alone brings clarity. And so therefore, this morning, I hope to bring a little clarity. So my agenda, my aim this morning is to do a biblical and theological analysis of race, racial tension, the theory of systemic racism, white privilege, and black lives matter, which means in many ways, I have just put a target on my chest. And that's cool. I'm okay with that. Kind of. Kind of. (laughs) Because the challenge with these kinds of sermons is you sort of feel like you're diffusing a bomb with a thousand different wires and no matter which wire you cut and no matter how delicately you cut that wire, you run the risk of offending someone. And so please know this morning that if I cut a wire that offends you um, or if I say something in a way that you wouldn't quite say it that way or make a definition that you wouldn't quite define in that way, please, please know I'm not trying to insult or offend you. I'm just trying as your pastor to bring some much-needed biblical clarity to an explosive situation, and I don't have the hours I need to say everything that I want to say in the way that I need to say it. I mean, I'm just trying to wrap my head around this thing the same way as you are, and so my job is to bring what the word has to say to bear on this particular situation and what God has to say in the text is the only, and I repeat, the only perspective that really actually matters in the end. So my aim, if you have notes, my aim is I want to give you biblical wisdom and clarity. Biblical wisdom and clarity on race, racial tension, and what lurks behind a culture of chaos so that you can better engage the world with courage and compassion. That's where we're going. Biblical wisdom and clarity on race and racial tension and what lurks behind the culture of chaos so that you can better engage the world with courage and compassion. And by engage the world, I mean with the gospel of Jesus Christ himself. 
I mean God's plan to save his elect from every nation and tribe and tongue and and people through the proclamation of the gospel. That's the only cause I'm interested in because that's the only cause given to us by Christ and that's the only one guaranteed to succeed. So this morning it's going to unfold in, in three parts. I told Sarah that the sermon is going to be a little bit like, you know, a John Piper sermon and a, a Jordan Peterson lecture on, on uh, social issues. So this morning is going to unfold in three parts. Part one, I'm going to give you a theological foundation, foundation of race and the biblical worldview. I mean, we have to. We have to begin with what the Bible has to say about uh, about. Uh, all of this, if we're going to have any clarity on the barrage of confusion that chokes us like a smoke-filled room. Part two, I'm going to give you the ideological underpinnings driving the culture. In other words, what are the underlying beliefs and philosophies driving the culture that helps explain things like the theory of systemic racism or white privilege? I mean, those things come from somewhere. They come from somewhere. They are driven by an underlying philosophy and ideology of which we must be aware. We need to explore what that is. And then part three, I want to discuss the complicated cultural campaigns and movements that are shouting the loudest right now to get your attention. Things like Black Lives Matter and white privilege and the theory of systemic racism. We have to understand what they are, what they mean by what they say, and because they are complicated. These are complicated, and these flow out of ideological underpinnings of which you should be, to be totally honest, incredibly suspicious. So pray for me. Pray for me as we do a, a theological analysis of a chaotic culture swimming in a sea of postmodern subjectivity. This is a tricky thing to start just cutting wires because those wires are attached to feelings and emotions. And yet, having said that, let me say something very important here. In a thing like this, if we make Christ the supreme and central treasure and object of our focus, if we make all that Christ is and all that Christ accomplished that which defines us, then we can do what the culture can never do, which is to disagree, peaceably and lovingly disagree, on issues less important than Christ. Do you see what I mean by that? If we can agree on the greatest reality in the universe then we can lovingly and peaceably have spirited conversations that actually get somewhere, which is, un, which is what the world is unable to do. Now, having said that, let's grab our wire cutters and let's go to work. Part one, theological foundation of race and the Christian worldview. Christian foundation of race and the Christian worldview. So if we're going to understand race and racial tension in the 21st century, we have to have a theology of race and the nations, and we have to know what God's plan is for the nations. Even more than that, we have to understand Christ, what his sin-bearing death accomplished, because that is the only thing, get this, that is the only thing, the only thing that can unite radically different people groups that otherwise would have nothing in common. Christ alone is sufficient 
to, to, to solve the most complicated ethnic, cultural, racial, global dilemmas in history. And before we're done, you'll see why. And so part one is divided up into three points. You can see it in your notes there. Part 1A is a biblical theology of race and the nations. A biblical theology of race and the nations. We have to begin here. And there are five things that you have to know about race from the Bible. Five things. Number one, the origin of races. The origin of races. In other words, where do they come from? Well, Genesis chapter 11 tells us exactly where they come from. They, they came from God. The, the, these were God's idea. God brought nations and differing people groups into existence, get this, as an act of judgment on human rebellion. I mean, you remember the scene. Genesis 11.1 1 tells us that all of the world was one lip and one words. That's what the Hebrew says. One lip, one words, meaning one language, one dialect. The problem is, you know, they had joined themselves together in a united coalition of evil against God. They had refused to do what God had told them to do. They refused to spread through the earth and fill it with his glory, which means what they were after was not God's glory, but their own glory. So God shows up, intervenes, breaks up the party, divides the people into various languages, spreads them all over the face of the planet, and voila, nations are born. And so think about it. Nations came into existence as an act of judgment of God on sin. So here's the world filled with nations in rebellion against God, at animosity with one another, under the wrath and judgment of God, and the very next chapter... God interrupts the life of a wealthy pagan businessman named Abram, which brings us to number two, the promise of blessing to all the nations. The promise of blessing to all the nations. I mean, I find it fascinating, don't you, that, this, that the very chapter, after the chapter in which nations came into existence, God reveals a plan of global blessing to all the nations, to races, to people groups, it's called the Abrahamic Covenant. It's a sovereign, unconditional promise to Abraham and the entirety of the Jewish race. And in that covenant, God gives the Jewish people a land, a identity as a people. He makes them a nation. And not only that, listen very carefully to what he promises in chapter 12, verse 3. He says, I will bless those who bless you. And those who curse you, I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. So it's interesting, isn't it? The, the covenant to Abraham, this isn't just a Jewish thing. This is a nation's thing. God is going global with his covenant to Abraham. It affects every single person on the planet in the history of the world. Why? Because in and through Abraham's descendants, blessing would come to the ends of the earth. This, this is helpful for us. We need this perspective in light of everything that we're seeing, everything that we're hearing in the media, in the culture, God's plan for the nations, which is the only plan that actually matters, is global blessing for every tribe and tongue and nation and people. Number three, the promise of a king for all the nations. The promise of a king for all the nations. Because the best kept secret in the book of Genesis is chapter 49 in which are found these, these 
series of prophecies in which is contained, at the center of which is this prophecy about the the tribe of Judah from whom would come this sovereign king who would rule the earth. And get this, it says that one day in the future he would come and all the peoples of the earth would obey him. One king to rule the nations, to rule every race. This is relevant for us. Relevant for in the discussion of race. I mean, we know how this thing is going to end. Harmony and, and equality under a sovereign king. But number four, the promise of a Messiah to save the nations. The promise of a Messiah to save the nations. Because we get to Isaiah chapter 49 and we are allowed to eavesdrop on a situation, on a conversation between God the Father and God the Son centuries before Christ ever shows up to the planet and listen to what the Father says to the Son. He says, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will make you, here it is, or goyim, a light of the nations, to bring, literally, to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. You hear that? Salvation to the ends of the earth in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. This means our chief focus when we think about the nations over and above all other causes of social justice should be, has to be, the global cause of God to rescue ruined races through a redeemer, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, number five, the cross of Christ, which creates commonality. The cross of Christ, which creates commonality. In fact, in fact, all racial tension is solved by the sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ. Solved. That's the whole point of Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. That one's whiteness or blackness or Jewishness or Gentileness, important though those things be, because that's the way God made us, those things do not ultimately define us. That is not the ultimate defining adjective that describes who we are. Rather, what defines us is the most precious and satisfying reality in the universe, namely the crucified and risen King, the Lord Jesus Christ. The cross alone creates commonality between radically different people groups who otherwise would have nothing in common. So much so that Paul could say, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Circumcision or uncircumcision. Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free man. But Christ is all and in all. So do you see what we're doing here? Before we even talk about culture, about race from a cultural perspective, we have to talk about race from a divine perspective. And that perspective is glorious and hopeful and certain and guaranteed. So much so that when we see Revelation 21 and 22, what do we see? Nations, races together in the new heavens and the new earth, treasuring the Father who chose them, worshiping the Lamb who bought them with His blood. And that tells us God loves the human race. Christ loves the nations. And that brings us to point 1B. Point 1B, which is a definition of racism. A definition of racism. And this will go fast. Because the reality is we are not in the new heavens and the new earth. 
right? It goes without saying. We are in a fallen world, and every human heart has been, is, is filled with humanly incurable corruption called sin, which means hatred and animosity for one another is sadly inevitable. Whether it was Cain and Abel or the Jews and the Gentiles or the Hutus and the Tutsis, sinful human beings have never done very well loving and caring for people who are different from themselves, even if they happen to be the same color. And so the question is, what is this thing called racism? What are we talking about when we talk about racism? Well, you'll be interested to know that the word racism doesn't actually appear in the Bible. It's not a, not a biblical term. In fact, the, probably the closest biblical equivalent that you can find is the word partiality partiality. That is, unfair bias and treatment of another person, which presupposes that you are being prejudiced towards somebody else. Partiality is the biblical equivalent, but if we had to define racism theologically, here's my definition. Racism is a shallow and convenient excuse to get revenge or to feel exalted over another person equally created in the image of God to whom salvation in Christ has been equally extended in the gospel. There's my definition. It wouldn't be a definition for me if it didn't have three lines. So I'll read it again. Racism is a shallow, convenient excuse to get revenge or to feel exalted over another human being equally created in the image of God, to whom salvation in Christ has been equally extended in the gospel. Notice, I say that it's a shallow, inconvenient excuse, because that's what it is. I mean, reaching for the lowest common denominator to hate someone, the amount of melanin in their skin, that is insane, that is preposterous. And the reason why I frame it this way is because in most cases, even if that person were the same race and culture, the human heart would still find a way to hate them anyway. Because the issue is not ultimately the color of their skin. It's ultimately a glory of God issue. The issue is the twisted longing of the human heart to assert its dominance and to find its highest satisfaction in feelings of self-exaltation. That's what we're talking about when we talk about racism or partiality. And any time, any time is a really great time to examine our own hearts to see if we are partial, to see if we are biased, if we are secretly seeking our satisfaction in silent feelings of self-exaltation over another human being, regardless of their race, and then seek grace to change. Which brings us perfectly to part 1C, the insanity of racism. The insanity of racism. Because we know, we know that, that racism and partiality is, is evil and stupid. We know that. But we know, do we know why? Do we know why it's evil and stupid? In fact, biblical spe biblically speaking, racism and partiality is nothing short of, of insane and nonsensical. It doesn't make any sense. And I have eight reasons why, eight reasons why racism is evil and insane. And I share this with you, not because you don't already believe it or don't already know it, but, but I, I, want us to, I want you to have in your evangelistic back pocket these kinds of things when talking with unbelievers because right now is the perfect time for evangelism. And why not begin the conversation sharing with them what the Bible has to say about race? So here they are. Eight reasons. Reason number one, why racism is insane. All people are equally created in the image of God. All people are equally created in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. 
the issue is settled. It's over. We, we could stop it there. We don't need to go on. The issue is over. We are equally created to reflect and portray the infinite worth and beauty of God, and the melanin in our skin changes nothing about that. It is irrelevant to the discussion. But reason number two, all people are connected in Adam. All people are connected in Adam. Listen to Acts 17, 24 through 27. Paul is, is preaching to the PhD philosophers in Athens at, at Mars Hill or the Areopagus, and listen to what he says. He says, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. Listen carefully. And he made from one man every nation of men to dwell on the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. At the end of the day, in Adam, we are one race, the human race. Reason number three, all people as equal in God's image share the same mandate to rule the earth and subjugate creation. All people as equal in God's image, share the same mandate to rule the earth and subjugate creation, right? You remember the opening mandate in Genesis 1. All people are called to rule and govern and, and subjugate the earth, right? That's, we, that's, that's a shared global mandate that we all have, and the color of our skin changes nothing about that. In fact, in fact, the sheer diversity of people in the world only heightens and, and displays the glory of God all the more. Reason number four. All people are born equally deserving of God's eternal wrath. All people are born e deserving of God's eternal wrath equally, right? For all have sinned. All have sinned. There is no one righteous, not even one. Despite our diverse ethnic or cultural backgrounds, we were all equally born under the same penalty for sin, which is the furious, righteous, eternal wrath and judgment of God. Changes everything. Reason number five, racism is insane. God has granted blessing to all nations without distinction through the Abrahamic covenant. God has granted, without distinction, blessing to all the nations through the Abrahamic covenant, which we saw, right? Which we, we saw. And so what, what does this do? This not only makes racism insane, but it also diminishes and even obliterates all of the divisive categories that the culture wants to impose upon us about race. Those are not biblical categories, and thus they're not really, at the end, helpful in the discussion for us, and they do not truly promote authentic love and unity, but the Abrahamic covenant does. Abrahamic covenant promotes that. Who would have known? Reason number six, God's sovereign election before time of some from every nation. <laughs> that, that exposes racism to be insane. The sovereign, eternal impartiality of God who chose some from every nation and then gave them to his son for whom he would die and purchase with his blood. This is the level playing field of sovereign grace. Chosen not because of our ethnic or cultural distinctives that make us who we are, 
but only by the sovereign initiative and choice of God. Reason number seven. The sin-bearing death of Christ for some from every nation. The sin-bearing death of Christ for some from every nation exposes racism or partiality to be insane. Revelation 5, 9, and 10 settles the issue. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, O Lamb, to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain. And you purchased for God with your blood some from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God. And they will reign upon the earth. Finally, reason number eight that exposes racism or partiality to be insane. All people have equal privileged access to eternal salvation through faith in Christ. All people have equal privileged access to eternal salvation through faith in Christ. Think about it. The death of Christ creates commonality between radically different people groups by gripping their souls with great shared realities that infinitely transcend all of the differences between them. Through faith in Christ, the same forgiveness. Through faith in Christ, the same justification. Through faith in Christ, the same adoption, the same reconciliation, the very same eternal life through Jesus Christ alone. And what that does is assassinate all feelings of superiority, of envy, of self-pity, of jealousy that could possibly exist between radically different people groups. The cross of Christ, this is the most important thing for us, the cross of Christ alone is the all-sufficient resource that creates commonality between radically different people groups. And that is why the local church is so strategic. Because in Christ, we alone can do in here what the world is unable to do out there. That's a theology of race, which I trust you would wholeheartedly embrace. These are the lenses through which we are to view everything in the culture and in the media and everything that we're about to say because that brings us to part two. Part two, the ideological underpinnings driving the culture. The ideological underpinnings driving the culture because one of the things we have to come to grips with is that we are right now living in a post-Christian age. I don't know if you have realized that, but we are. We're living in a post-Christian age. What that means is, is that the biblical worldview that most of us grew up with has largely disappeared from the scene. See, the assumptions that we all bring to the table about a creator and sin and reality and morality and truth, that's all being replaced by something profoundly different. You know that, right? Everyone from about the age of my kids on up will not believe, will not share the same assumptions that we have about the world. And you don't misunderstand, a less Christian America does not mean a less religious America. It does not mean that. In fact, in the new religion being spawned by America, the new orthodoxy is political correctness. Watch what you say. Watch what you think. Or you'll be branded a heretic. Holiness is the number of victim statuses that you possess. The less white, the less male, the less heterosexual you are, the more virtuous and credible you automatically become. 
In this new religion, conversion or being born again is to be awakened or woke to the oppressive and racist structure to which you belong. Original sin is privilege, and in particular, white privilege. And if you have are what deemed to be privileges, you are to feel remorse for those and even to repent of those privileges. And in the fastest growing religion in America, there is, unfortunately, there's no atonement. There's no forgiveness. You just have to fully embrace LGBTQQIA+, and global warming, and white privilege, or any other doctrine that suddenly emerges onto the scene. And if you don't do that, you will be canceled which is the culture's equivalent to hell. So my question is, my question is, what are the underlying philosophies and presuppositions driving the culture? What are the assumptions, the, the, the assumptions about reality that are driving everything that we are seeing and feeling in the culture? And there are three. There are three ideologies or underlying philosophies that are driving the culture as we speak. Part 2A is cultural Marxism. Cultural Marxism. What do I mean? Well, Karl Marx, you remember, was an economist, right? Marxism is, is an economic system. And what what gripped Marx, what, what he envisioned was a perfect society, one without hierarchies of power and without class distinctions. Does that make sense? Kind of a utopia. You see, uh, Marx essentially saw society divided up between the bourgeois, bourgeoisie and the proletariat. The bourgeoisie and the proletariat. The bourgeoisie are the people of power with all the money who exploit the powerless proletariat. And, and Marx then envisioned that a, a future revolution that would take place in the future by the oppressed proletariat that would overthrow the entire economic system and then evenly redistribute the wealth to be a perfect utopia without hierarchies of power. Socialism. Communism. That was his vision. Cultural Marxism, on the other hand, is the exact same thing, but applied at the level of the culture. Cultural Marxism believes that culture is divided up into two main groups. There is the oppressor-privileged class. There is the oppressed-underprivileged class. Furthermore, cultural Marxism says that the current political governmental system in which we exist was designed at the outset to exclusively benefit white, male, heterosexual, cisgendered, able-bodied, native-born Americans. And you, you know what I mean by cisgendered, right? That means that you believe that your sex and your gender are the same. So if you are white and male and heterosexual and uh, cisgendered and able-bodied native-born American, you are part of the privileged oppressor class. You, you, are, you are part of an inherently racist and sexist and homophobic system that is exclusively designed to benefit you. And to the degree which you are not those things, to, which, to the degree you are not white, male, heterosexual, cisgendered, able-bodied, native-born American, you are the underprivileged oppressed. And th this isn't like there are like two people in the world who believe this and, and like no one knows what this is. No, th this is mainstream, you understand. And so the goal, the goal of cultural Marxism 
is to overthrow the rule maintained by social institutions and those in power because everyone who belongs to the privileged class is inherently racist and bigoted and they have obtained their privileges through unjust means and so the oppressed disadvantaged minority groups need to fight for the redistribution of power and, and, uh, and those resources to redress those grievances. This, this, is, this is a thing. And so when you hear terms like privileged or defund the police or oppressor groups or systemic racism, that's a perception based on a theory that's rooted in a particular kind of philosophy that at root is atheistic, which maintains that class distinctions or disparities between people groups is inherently oppressive or racist. Now, I'm not saying that racism isn't a real thing. Nor am I saying that there haven't been injustices or atrocities committed against people of color. I've read history too. I believe in the doctrine of total depravity. This has always happened. And it's terrible and wicked and awful and deserving of the wrath of God. Amen? All I'm saying is be very careful of buzzwords. Be being shouted to us from the culture because they flow out of an underlying philosophy that at its root is patently unbiblical. Part 2b. The second ideology driving the culture is critical race theory. Critical race theory or intersectionality. Critical race theory is the firstborn child of, of cultural Marxism. And what it is, it's a theory of social philosophy. It essentially says, and this is the most important foundational thing to understand about it, it says that our individual identity, our, individual as a, our, our identity as an individual person is inseparable from our group identity. That's important. And so what critical race theory argues is that white people are part of the oppressor group. Critical race theory argues that whites are inherently evil, and at a minimum, unethical by nature of their congenital and ancestral makeup, all non-whites are therefore to be considered as victims of non-whites. Wait, no, all non-whites are to be considered victims of whites. There we go. And, and I know you think I'm making this up, but there's only a few wackos out there on the fringe who believe this. It's not. It's not the fringe. This, this is mainstream. This is taught in universities. You can get majors. You can get, you can get your major in this stuff. In fact, the entire Southern Baptist Convention embraced critical race theory as a valid hermeneutic by which to understand the Bible. The entire Southern Baptist Convention embraced this. Now, I know, I know, they said, they tried to clarify with their language that they're not going to allow this to supersede the Bible, but I, I, I don't understand why you would allow this in your interpretation of the Bible at all. And again, this is not the crazy fringe that believes this. One major evangelical leader. If I said his name, you would know who it was. Listen to what he says. Without confession to the sin of white racism, white supremacy, white privilege, people who call themselves white Christians will never be free. Free from the bondage of a lie, a myth, an ideology, and an idol. White Christians, since the founding of America, have been living a lie. What does that do to your soul, he says, to live a lie? Do you hear that? Guilty. Not until proven innocent. Guilty until you admit that you're guilty. 
because to be white is to be inherently racist. If you don't believe me, one uh, professed evangelical named uh, Ekemeni Uwan said this recently at an evangelical conference right here in Dallas. Here's what she said. She, she professes to, to represent Christ. She says, the reality is that whiteness is rooted in plunder, theft, the enslavement of Africans and the genocide of Native Americans. End quote. Whiteness is rooted in plunder and theft. To be white, in other words, means that you are a greedy thief bent only on the enslavement and, and slaughter of others. That's what it means to be white, and, and you can't escape that. It, it doesn't matter if you harbor no ill feelings towards people of color. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because that's only your implicit bias. In other words, you're racist. You just don't know that you're racist. That's the theory. Now, I'm not, I'm not denying that some white people are racist. I'm not denying that. Nor am I denying that all white people are inherently evil. In fact, I say, I believe, all white people should currently be in hell even as we speak. Along with the rest of the human race. I'm also saying that the source of their depravity and wickedness doesn't merely come from their ethnic or ancestral makeup, but it comes from the father of the human race and the polluted springs of their own soul. I'm also saying that the plague of sin has infected every human soul regardless of their ethnicity and that we are all born equally guilty of exchanging the glory of God for idols. The deepest dilemma of the human race has nothing to do with our race, but how do we be reconciled to God as the treasure of our souls? Which is why Christ and not social reform is the answer to everything. I'm not saying we shouldn't do things when we have the chance or the power. I'm just saying Christ is the one who must ultimately affect that change eternally because we care about all suffering. Amen? But we especially care about eternal suffering. So how do we, how should we respond to critical race theory? I've got three responses. Number one, I believe we should reject critical race theory as believers. I think we should reject this because it, it fundamentally denies the sovereignty of God which, and the way that he created people to differ for his glory. This is extremely divisive. My biggest problem with this is that it's extremely divisive. And if it does not promote the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, then it has zero place in the worldview of a believer in Christ. Number two, we should reject critical race theory because it proposes that individuals are complicit in racism by virtue of their ethnicity. I'm not saying that everyone who might hold to some form of this believes that. I'm just saying at the, at the textbook level that is being taught and embraced by many, this is what's said, that you are complicit in your racism by virtue of your ethnicity. The problem is where in the Bible are people ever held guilty for their ethnicity, gender, or income? Where, where do you see that? It's not there. It's, it, that's not there. God holds individuals accountable for sin on two fronts. Guilt in Adam and guilt by disobedience 
to God's word. And guilt is never incurred because of melanin level in your skin or your gender or your socioeconomic class. And number three, we should reject critical race theory because it divides people primarily into two groups. The oppressors and the oppressed. My question is, is that, are those appropriate biblical lenses by which we're to view humanity? Is, is that appropriate? Is that, is that biblically warranted for us? Because the Bible also does divide people into two main groups, synonymously known as those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Those in Adam, those in Christ. Those who are dead in trespasses and sins and those made alive together with Christ. Thus, thus, critical race theory ought to be rejected because it creates identity markers which the scriptures do not. This is identity politics from, from a secular worldview rooted in ideologies that are incompatible with Christianity and therefore has no business in the thinking in the life of the church. Which brings us to part 2C, which is wokeness. Wokeness. Which sounds weird, right? What is wokeness? What does it mean to be woke? Well, you, you can hear that it's related to the term awakened, to be awakened. And so to be woke means that you have been awakened to the fact that the entire political, governmental, and educational system is inherently racist. And if you are white, you are complicit in that racism and you have contributed to the oppression of disadvantaged groups. I'm not saying that every person who holds some form of, of wokeism believes that. I'm just saying this is what it is. This is what it is. And, and again, it doesn't merely admit that, mean that you admit that racism is real. It doesn't merely admit that. It doesn't merely mean that you, you confess to having racist thoughts in your life. It, do, it doesn't mean that. To be woke is to accept critical race theory without question and that whiteness is inherently racist and that the entire society is built upon and organized around practices that actively discriminate against people of color. In other words, this is critical race theory's version of conversion, of, of being born again. And the only way to be woke is to accept critical race theory as a fact and, and, to, and failure to do so or even to challenge the assumption. Makes you culturally blind at best and at worst to be a racist. That's why you see videos of, of, of white people asking for forgiveness of, for being white. That's why you have statues being torn down because people are being awakened that everything upon which the country is stood is by its very design inherently racist. Now, I'm not trying to be political or controversial. I'm not taking sides here. I am definitely not defending the government for anything that they've ever done. I'm not saying that. I'm not one of those, you know, patriotic Christians that to be a Christian is to be American. That's not, that's not where I'm at. I'm not denying any atrocities that, that have happened at the governmental level. I'm just trying to report that there is a cultural ideology of which, of which we must be aware. My great discomfort with wokeness is, A, it deals more with perceptions and anecdotes than actual facts. And B, this is my biggest beef with it, it's, it's incredibly divisive. It's really divisive. I mean, if all wokeness wanted to say is that racism is real and that it is evil and that individual acts of racism should be opposed, then I'm all in. Count me among the woke. But that's not what it says. It's not what this is. 
This is a dangerous Gnosticism. Secret knowledge. An elevated status. I'm enlightened, you are not. And if you are not woke, then there's no conversation to, to be had. You are either blind or racist, and your only hope is to do penance for the rest of your life. So do, do you see the danger here? That this does not belong in our thinking. There's no Christ in this. This doesn't have the smell of Ephesians 2 and the cross tearing down the barrier. There's no in Christ we are one new man reconciled in one body through the cross. Rather, there's only division here. And therefore, this belongs outside the church. Which brings us quickly to part three. Part three, the complicated cultural campaigns and movements the complicated cultural campaigns and movements. In other words, I want to very quickly move to three manifestations of critical race theory, which are these campaigns and movements being unquestioned, being quickly becoming unquestioned assumptions in the culture. And these, these campaigns and movements are, number one, the theory of systemic racism, number two, white privilege, and number three, black lives matter. And you can just feel it, right? You just feel it. Even just saying those words, those are the, these are the, the most complicated wires to cut, which is why I called them complicated. See, each of these things just requires more time to explain than the time that I have to explain them, and yet clearly and, and concisely I, I want to bring some clarity to the issue. So part 3A, the theory of systemic racism. The theory of systemic racism. It overlaps a lot with things we've said, but because but, this is a theory. It is a theory. And the theory of systemic racism is not that racism exists, which is sadly and patently undeniable. No one denies that. Rather, systemic racism is an application of cultural Marxism and critical race theory, which essentially argues that racism is at the, at the system or institutional level meaning the entire society is inherently racist and that its political and governmental structures do by design actively discriminate. Even if they don't mean to, they still do. And although the Civil Rights Acts of 1964 and 1968 made such things illegal in the public and private sectors, systemic racist theory maintains that racism is buried in the subconscious of white people who have abused positions of power to discriminate against peoples of color. Again, this is really complicated. It's really, really complicated. Because all governments are imperfect. All governments are filled with sinful people who have sinful agendas, right? We, we can't deny that. And, and any policy, here's what's really important here, any policy that comes into play is going to affect different people in different ways. But that's a far cry from saying that any disparity between blacks and whites is rooted in a malicious attempt, subconscious or otherwise, to discriminate against the black community. Now, have those things happened? <laughs> Absolutely they have. Against blacks? Against the Italians? The Polish? The Germans? The Japanese? The Irish? In the 1800s, remember when everyone's coming to America? All of those kinds of things happen to all of those people groups as well. Every single one of them. Read the history. Read the history. It's sad and lamentable. Fallen man has never done very well loving and caring for those who are different from themselves, even if they are the same skin color. It, that's not the issue. 
And so here's the deal. If we see laws, if we see regulations that are inherently racist or oppressive, then what we need to do, and, and, and discriminatory, then we need to stand together to get them repealed. Amen? If we see those things and they are discriminatory, then we stand together and we end those. Point is, we should execute great caution before we start accusing the government of participating in systemic racism and making everyone who belongs to a particular group automatically guilty. And, and you know, and and no matter what they do, they are guilty. And my, my point is, here's this is very important. We need to hold out the possibility that there are other possible complicating factors that very mel- very well might explain the disparities between certain groups. That's all I'm arguing for. That's all I'm asking for. Does that make sense? There are other possible complicating factors that might very well explain discrepancies between certain groups. This is complicated. And when we see those things, we vote and we pray for change. All the while knowing that when Christ returns to establish his global kingdom, only then will there be liberty and justice for all. Listen to Isaiah chapter 11. Just a breath of fresh air in the midst of everything that we're hearing. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. This is a prophecy of Christ when he comes in his kingdom. A stem shall come forth from the root of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. Imagine a political ruler with those kinds of qualities. And his delight will be in the fear of Yahweh. And he will not execute justice by the appearance of his eyes. He will not decide by the rumor of his ears. He shall judge the poor with righteousness and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth and righteousness will be the belt around his loins and faithfulness will be the belt about his waist that he is the all of put it this way all of the eggs of our hope are being placed in the basket of Jesus Christ who will make all things right which brings me to part 3b Part 3B, which is white privilege. This is almost so hot, I can, I can barely even touch it. But white privilege essentially says that if you are white, then you are born into a society that unfairly is imbalanced to benefit you. And that you are part of the oppressor class. And I'm not saying that everyone who believes in some form of white privilege believes that. I'm just, I'm just saying that is what it is. That's what's being promoted in the media. That's what's underlying what we're seeing. Not everyone is guilty if they use this language of, of believing this. I'm just saying this is what it is at, at its essence. So to have white privilege is a system of unearned benefits and advantages that have been un- unjustly, key word, unjustly provided to white people simply because of their race. And again, this is, this is immensely complicated. This is insanely complicated. The statistical disparities between blacks and whites is an insanely complicated issue, which is precisely why white privilege is such a problem. Do, do you see? Because, because it oversimplifies the complications. Not every disparity between the black and white community is inherently racist. There are thousands of complicating factors that explain statistical discrepancies, and it will not do. Nor is it an adequate explanation to simply say this is a matter of white privilege. 
Now, do some people have other advantages and benefits that other people do not? Of course. Of course, that, that's, that's inevitable. That's obvious. I mean, who would deny that all people do not enjoy the same opportunities, benefits, or, or blessings in this life? Call that privilege if you will. But in reality, that is ultimately part of God's providential ordering of the world. Parable of the talents, case and point. I mean, there's going to be discrepancies in the new heavens and the new earth. You realize that, right? It's not going to be some kind of weird, classless utopia. You read Revelation 21 and 22. There are kings there. They rule people there. People are ruled there. Now, this doesn't justify oppression. No one is saying that. No one believes that here. It doesn't justify that, nor, nor does it mean that we shouldn't seek to correct any disparities that are evil or unjust. Agreed? I'm just saying that, that explaining those disparities by racializing them or, or weaponizing them by calling whites to check their privilege is a misguided way to provide equal outcomes for different groups of people. In the end, I think we should be very leery of the white privilege concept. Why? Because, get this, it unnecessarily creates division and suspicion when it doesn't have to be there. I think if you embrace this, I think it places significant obstacles between blacks and whites that are otherwise diminished in the gospel and in the sovereign grace of Jesus Christ who equally loves his people with infinite affection. That solves the issue. More could, more should be said about that, but let me finish very quickly with part 3C and just one comment about Black Lives Matter. Just one comment. One series of comments. Uh, and all I have to say is this. Black lives do matter. 100%. Equally created in the image and likeness of God. Equal privileged access to the treasure of salvation by faith in Christ. Black lives do matter 100%. We die for that. The reason why people hesitate using the phrase Black Lives Matter is because there's an actual group called Black Lives Matter. And they're not a great group. I'm not talking about the people who, I'm not talking about the people, a part of the group. I'm talking about the people who created the group, the, the founders of the group. It's a Marxist group. It's a, it's a Marxist group. They're not a great group. They want to defund the entire government. They want to cause social unrest. They want to destroy the family structure of, of one man plus one woman. They want to dismantle the entire political system in favor of a neo-Marxist one instead of a Christian one. And in one sense, I get it. I get it. The, the, these are people who are understandably angry and, and disillusioned and deeply distressed by injustices committed against people of color. I, I, I get that. However, the hateful instigation of law enforcement the destruction of public and private property, the, the creating violent situations in which people have died, that's classic revolutionary behavior. Not on board. Not on board with that. My point is, there is a better way to grieve. There's a better way to grieve and to stand against injustice than to lock arms with the Black Lives Matter group. Because you remember that God's plan for his people 
was not a social justice organization, but it is the local church. And the message that we have is far superior, far superior than anything the Black Lives group has to say. Because our message is the glory of God has been trampled by human beings who only deserve hell. And yet God has made a way where sinful human beings don't have to bear that punishment. And how he did that was by providing a substitute to stand in the place of hell-deserving sinners and then execute all of his furious wrath on that substitute who is, as you know, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And you see that, that right there. That is the deepest racial severing, prejudice erasing reality in the universe. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we're grateful for your heart for people. You love sinners. You love righteousness. You love justice. You hate dishonesty. You hate injustice. You hate oppression. And Christ, we give you thanks and praise that you are the one who will bring it all to come to pass, the perfect society, the, the perfect culture. You will make all of that happen, and for that we're grateful. And these are strange times, Christ. These are really strange times for us. The pandemic, which just feels so odd. The unrest in the culture, which is even odder. And then something else is going to happen tomorrow. And, and so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people profoundly rooted in the text, profoundly dependent upon your word, saturated with your word. So, Lord, help us as we move forward to have lion-hearted courage and broken-hearted compassion that we would not be like the cancel culture that sniffs out every wrong thing that someone did in their past in order to destroy them and make a public mockery of them, but we would be those who offer hope and joy and justice to the nations through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, in whom all groups are made one and who tore down the barrier wall and division of hostility through his death. It's in his name we pray.